0: At the end of Acts chapter 2, we saw that the early church committed themselves, devoted themselves actually, to, to four uh, really biblical practices. Uh, they had devoted themselves to uh, the apostles' teaching, which means they were all about the study of the Word of God. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, that means mean that they came and they gathered together as a faith family they committed themselves to the breaking of bread one with another which which included the the observing of the ordinance of the lord's supper and lastly they committed themselves to prayer so here at the end of chapter 4 <coughs> excuse me at the end of chapter 4 we see what these early christians prayers look like. We get a glimpse of them. Now, to kind of catch you up to speed, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, in the beginning of chapter Acts chapter 3, what we saw is that uh, two of the disciples, Peter and in, in, in John, uh, healed a, a lame man by the power of God, healed him, and he went up walking and leaping and praising God, got the attention of a lot of people, including the religious leaders who, in anger, arrested these two men because they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And so, After being warned and threatened, they're set away. And here in verse 23, chapter 4 in verse 23, we find out what happens immediately after their time with these religious leaders. The Bible says there that they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And what was it that the elders and chief priests and religious leaders had said to them? We know in verse 18, let me read it for you. It says that they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. When these disciples go back to the, their friends and their family, and they're telling them what had happened and what specifically they were told, it's at this point that things begin to become real. I, you know that when, when all of a sudden, when, when your wife comes home for the very first time, you've never had children, and says, I'm pregnant, things get real for the, the, at least that, at that particular moment. At this point, this is one of those It got real at that moment, and the reason is is because now the realization strikes them that if we're going to be faithful to do what Jesus Christ has called us to do, and that is to propagate and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends, with our family, with the people in our own community, and we're going to spread it throughout the whole known world, then we are most certainly going to be physically persecuted because of it. So to be obedient means that we are ultimately going to have to suffer. Now, in light of that kind of news, how do you think that they ultimately responded? What do you think that they did? Well, they begin to pray. They begin to pray, and that really probably shouldn't be of a great surprise to us. God's people are supposed to be people of prayer, amen? And the Bible tells us, if you're wondering what the will of God is, it says, Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. Uh, Paul tells us in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, "He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. So, in good times, bad times, tough times, we are constantly be in, to be in a spirit of prayer. But even unbelievers will pray. We know that, right? They may not believe in Christ. They may not even know the God to whom they're praying. But under certain circumstances, when the circumstances are just right, when when they're feeling weak, when they're feeling troubled, when difficulties are arising, when they don't have answers, when they feel things are out of control, they will even begin to pray. Again, not knowing who they're praying to, but they may pray. So the surprise here in this chapter is not that in them facing difficulty and hardship and threats that they begin to pray, The surprising part is how they pray. That's what's surprising. Because the way they pray is so radically different than the way that you and I often pray. In fact, their content is radically different, I would say, and I would surmise, that many of us ultimately pray at all. And so this message really is, in one aspect, corrective. I hope that it's encouraging, and I hope that it's instructing. If you pray, this is for you. If you don't pray, this is for you. So guess what? This message is for everyone, right? And so it's to help us. Now, what was so surprising about this prayer? Two things of why it was surprising. Number one, it was surprising how much it was about God. It was surprising how much their prayer was about the person of God, that God was the object of their prayer. I say, why is that surprising? Because if you just look at this text of scripture in your Bible and you look at the prayer, you'll see that a good two-thirds of the prayer is all about the person of God, which is radically different than your and my prayers many times. Would, would you admit that? Uh, the majority of our prayers has to do with who? It has to do with us, with what we want, with what we need, with what we ultimately feel this new group of believers, their thoughts are completely committed to God, and when they begin to pray, they acknowledge at least two things about Him. The first thing that they acknowledge is that God was greater. These religious leaders had come, and they had they tried to wield their authority over them by threatening them, telling them if they spoke about Jesus again, that they would do it by risk of their own freedom and their own life. And when you hear that kind of news in the morning, when you hear difficult news, any time of the day, you know that it's very easy for that news to be so big that it gives you a very bad day. Do you ever have that kind of stuff? Going through the day, everything's going okay, somebody comes up to you and says, boom, they deliver it to you, messes up the entire day, and it throws your whole life out of balance. Your heart. Your mind, your thinking, your feeling, everything seems to be set off base. And so they realize that what they need is to be realigned. They, they need to be recalibrated, if you will, their minds and their hearts on the person of God. And the way they do that is to begin to remind themselves how great God is. How great God is. And so they begin to do it and they begin to reflect on the fact that God was greater than any threat that could be made towards them, or anybody who was ultimately making those threats. And they said, look, God is greater. How is God greater? Two ways. First, God was greater in power. Look at verse 24, if you will. He says, who through the mouth, excuse me, he says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The name Sovereign Lord was the title that they were given to God. It's how they were addressing Him. And that title speaks literally of a ruler of unchallengeable power. There was no doubt in the disciples' mind that these religious leaders had all kinds of political power. They had all kinds of power to be able to make their lives miserable, but they recognized that God, their God, had infinite power. They understood that these men had the power to be able to make threats against them, but God had the power to make the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There was no comparison between the power of those things that threatened them and the power of the God who was ultimately for them. There was no comparison between the two. God was greater in his power. But they also recognized that God was greater in his knowledge, look at verse 25. He says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What are they doing here? They're actually quoting from Psalm chapter 2, a, a, a psalm that that David, King David, is actually the one who wrote that. He was the author of it. And what they're they're doing is they're looking back on this passage of what he had written because it's actually a prophecy. The Holy Spirit came upon him and King David began to prophesy of what it would be like when the Messiah would come. And he says when the Messiah would come, people wouldn't embrace him. They would reject him. In fact, the kings of the world, the Gentiles and all those would actually rise up against him. That's what we just read. They would come up against him and not only against him, but they would come against his followers as well. His anointed as well. Now, why is this comforting? Well, you know what? There's a little bit of intimidation because these guys that are threatening them, they're not only powerful, they're very knowledgeable. These are the intellectuals of the day. These are the PhDs. I don't know about you, but when I'm around really, really smart people, which we have some in the church, I get a little bit nervous. I'm I'm afraid I'm gonna say something stupid, which I do half of the time. And if you're around somebody really, really smart, especially if they're 13, that that could be annoying, especially if they're correcting your grammar, right? And and, and then you're afraid to speak in front of them. That is not only intimidating, it's annoying, right? So if you're that 13-year-old, stop it all right and so it can be annoying it's intimidating and so what he's ultimately saying is here he says yeah guys look we recognize that these guys are literally the sharpest knives in the drawer that you're dealing with but well, we want to let you know that your god is smarter because he not only knows how to tackle this and navigate you through this threat of persecution He knew that this threat of persecution would come hundreds and hundreds of years before they ever did it. God, Jesus Christ, is way ahead of them. Your God is far more powerful, far more knowledgeable than anyone or anything that can come up against you, or anyone or anything that can oppose you. Now, there's something beautiful about the Book of Psalms, Psalm chapter two. You can go back and read this immediately as. It talks about, and he prophesies about how all these kingdoms were going to come up against God and against God's people. The very next verse, in verse 4, says this. You don't don't hear it here, but I love it. In verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So here's the whole world saying, We're going to rebel against this God. All right, we're going we're gonna to stand up and we're going to stand against them and we're going to stand against the people. What is God's response? He's not sitting there going, man, this might be really bad. we got a lot of big armies here. He sits in the heavens and goes, <laughs> that's good. That's a good one. That's great. It reminds me a little bit of the, of the book of Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember this? Remember Genesis chapter 11, the people are too big for their britches and all of a sudden they decide that they're going to go and see God. So they're going to build this great big tower. And they're going to make a great name for themselves. And they're going to use all their intellect and all their technology and all their power and all their wealth. And they're going to build this tower up into heaven. And they begin to build it. And everybody around is high-fiving. And they're like, dude, you're smart. No, you're smart. You're powerful. No, you're powerful. And then we get a glimpse of what's happening in heaven. And there's God with the Godhead, the God of the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they sit there and go, hey, let's go down. Let's go down to see what it is that they're doing. It's supposed to be humorous by the author, by these people boasting, going, we will go all the way to the heavens. And God is so big and so high above them. He goes, hey, they built something. I'm not really sure exactly what it is. Let's go down and see what this thing is, right? We're talking about the difference between man and ants. You, you got that, right? That, that, that's the picture. This last week, I was mowing this big field, and I'm mowing. And for whatever reason, there's, there's more ant piles than I can think of. And at first, I'm starting to go around them, not, not knowing why I'm going around them. And finally, I'm like, why am I going around these ants? I am man. I am man. They are ants. They can't stop me. So I get my self-propelled mower, as a man would have, and I take it, and I just run right through it you know, they didn't stop me. They could not stop me. They didn't slow me down. Actually, they did slow me down because some of the ants got on me and then I started beating them down and everything, but it hurt. But this, you get the point. The point is the greatest that man has is but ants to God in his infinite power and in his infinite knowledge. He cannot be stopped through them. It's amazing how arrogant people can ultimately become and how they boast. You'll hear sciences be able to say, hey, we have discovered the atom so small you can't see it but we've seen it we figured out a way to be able to see it and to be able to find it we know that the atom is there we boast in ourselves and not only do we know how to find it but we can split it and we can release all of its infinite power and god is just sitting there laughing he goes you know who made that atom don't you you know who put all of that amazing power within it don't you Some of you here are old enough, I am not, to remember the space race back in the 60s. All right, we had four of you nod your head. You remember this? The rest of us read it in in history books, right? Maybe we read it in history books. All right, here's the deal. USA versus Russia, enough said, all right? So these two guys are sitting there going, we're going to have a race. Where are we going to race to? Let's go to the moon. Let's see who could be the first one to put somebody on the moon. They begin to race, and the whole nation begins to gather around each other. Spoiler alert, if you don't know history or you didn't live during the time, USA wins. They have this great big parade in New York City. And and all this confetti is raining down and and there's Neil Armstrong in his car and he's driving by and people are chanting USA, USA, USA. I don't really know if they're chanting that, but I imagine that they're chanting that like in a hockey game or something. USA, and they're chanting this and all of a sudden here comes Neil Armstrong and you can almost imagine one of the parents sitting there going, honey, honey, that's Neil Armstrong. He walked on the moon and our God who is greater than more powerful and more knowledgeable begins to whisper in the heart and the ear of that young child and begins to say, yeah, but I made that moon. I made that moon. He is far greater. He is far more powerful than anything you and I can ever imagine. If you're here this morning and if you think your biggest problem in this world is someone or something, some trouble or some situation, you are wrong. You are dead wrong. Your problem is not that your difficulty is too big. Your problem is that your view of God is way, way, way too small. No matter how great your pain, your trouble, your opposition, your obstacle, your problem, he is greater. That is what brought faith and hope and joy in the heart of these believers is believing that God was great. Now, there's a second thing that we see here. They not only acknowledge that God was greater, they also acknowledge that God was in control. Look at verse 27. The Bible says, For truly in the city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever, underline this, to do whatever your plan had predestined to take place. Now, what are they doing here? Why are they looking back at the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at this point? Why are they looking back to it? Listen, if you were there, if you were one of those disciples, we we know we'd like to say, I would never deny him. I I, I wouldn't have run. You would have run. You would have denied. We would have done everything that the apostles would have done. Why? Because we felt like we had no control. When, 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 When this happens, when all of this stuff begins to fall apart they begin to believe as they were there that there were some very that these powerful men Herod they list them there we see Herod Pontius Pilate uh the Roman soldiers uh we're talking about the 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 religious leaders we're talking about the mobs of Jewish people that called that crucify him crucify him at that point they believed that they were the ones who were in control they believed they were out of control. If they were in control, they wouldn't have allowed Jesus to be taken. They wouldn't have allowed him to be crucified. But in the midst of that, as they had run and as they hid behind locked doors, it would have been easy for them to think just like you and I do, is not only do we not have control, but somehow God has lost control. That God has lost control because his very son was now just put to death. He must not be in control either it's something that you and i have thought maybe not consciously but maybe passing in our mind god how can this happen are, are you really in control at all and then now that they look back that's what they're doing right now they're looking back and in hindsight they realized something that they didn't realize during the time and that was that god was absolutely in control of every moment of even the crucifixion of his own son They understood that, that he hadn't lost control by looking back to Jesus' death and reminding themselves that God was still in control. Then they would be encouraged knowing that in the present trouble and difficulty of this persecution that God once again was in perfect control. In other words, here's how it works. It's from greater to lesser. If they look back and they know that in the midst of the difficulty in which they were going through, that Jesus was going to be crucified, the most horrific thing, moment in all of humanity, if God was still in control there, and to be able to use it to bring about the best for his people, which is the salvation for his people, then he can take the difficulties that they were experiencing on, which isn't nearly as horrific as sinful, and guess what, God can use that too for them. See, there's a tension here. It's a tension that we're always dealing with. You know what that tension is? The difference, the tension between free human will and the sovereign will of God. On one point, at one point, when these men crucified Jesus, they did it by their own volition. They did it because they wanted to do it. They weren't being coerced. They weren't being forced to put Jesus Christ to death. This was the byproduct of their hatred towards Christ and they acted upon it. They acted upon their sin by crucifying Jesus Christ. But at the same time, this is what the Bible teaches, even though they're acting independently of God, not being coerced by God, they were very much doing the very sovereign will that God had said that would happen before the foundations of the earth. And we read it as early as Genesis chapter 3, what we call the proto-evangelium, that he would be struck, his heel would be struck, but he would crush the head of the servant. So you see this tension in between these two things. And And so what we understand is that through that, even though many times men are acting incredibly sinful, things in this world that you and I are affected by, that we are hurt by, seems sometimes, God, are you ultimately in control? God is always sovereignly in control. I I love this story as a a kid. I I love listening to Old Testament and studying Old Testament. We do here, if you've been here long enough you know we go from new testament to old testament oftentimes but kind of running out of books or getting kind of hard to preach and so uh you just kind of going back and forth but hopefully we'll eventually get to all of them and in the old testament i love to be able to read about elijah stories about elijah were fascinating one of my favorite stories is about elijah versus the 450 prophets of baal do you remember this uh, so the people are not worshiping God. They're kind of going back and forth to God, to Baal, to God, to Baal. And he's like, hey, look, if God's God, worship him. If Baal's Baal, worship him. But let's go ahead and let's have, I challenge you to a test right now to prove whose God is actually God. And so you remember this, they make two altars and they take a, they take wood and they they put it up there and they they, they kill the animals, the, 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 the bulls, and they put them on. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to let you guys first. There's more of you. And So why don't you guys go ahead and call on your God and see if your God will send down fire to be able to consume the offering. And so they do. They begin in the morning, they begin to chant, they begin to sing, they begin to do their dance and and nothing really happens. So they begin to cut themselves and they begin to bleed themselves, believing according to their tradition that it was gonna somehow get the attention of their God. And there's Elijah over in the side and it says, literally the Bible says, he started mocking him. He goes, hey, um, Man, maybe he's out somewhere. Maybe he's relieving himself, which is exactly what it sounds like he's saying. He says, maybe he's out on vacation. Maybe he's just falling asleep. Maybe you need to go ahead and wake Baal up. That's the problem. And so they just—they even more angry, more, more cutting, more bleeding, more yelling, more chanting. Nothing happens. Finally, by mid-afternoon, Elijah sits there and goes, okay, we're going to do this. But Uh, I need a couple things. I need to get four large jars of water and I need you to pour it over the altar and I need you to saturate the bowl. And the people are sitting there going, dude, this is gonna be more difficult for God. And they're sitting there going, God's greater. Just put the water on the bowl. It's not gonna stop God. And so puts four big jars of water on it, saturates it. Then he goes, do it again. Another four jars, do it again. Another four jars. Finally, it's completely saturated. The trenches are completely filled up. Praise to God, and he says, God, prove that you are the one and only God. Fire comes down, consumes the whole thing. Do you remember that? Now the, now you sit there and go, yeah, I know the story. I have no idea what it's about, but it's really cool. What, so what are the points of that story? Let me give you just very quickly at least three points to that story. One is there is only one God. There is only one God. Number two, he is greater than... Then any one or any obstacle, even 12 jars of water, can't stop him. And number three, God never, ever, ever takes a vacation. He is always there. There was never a time, and the reason that this is important, because some of you have been abandoned, some of you have been hurt, some of you have been cheated, and you've you've had these things happen by sinful people of their own volition. And even though God is in no way responsible for the sin against you, this was and is also a part of God's perfect sovereign plan for you. He was not momentarily distracted, nor did he lose focus or sleep or go on a vacation. He was always there and always in control, making sure that the perfect will for you would be completed. The followers of Jesus, their peace and their joy and their faith, your peace, your joy, your faith, is directly proportional to your conviction that God is always in control no matter what. If you think that for any moment at any time when bad things are happening, when huge challenges are coming away, that somehow God has lost it and he's asleep or he's gone on vacation, then you will have no joy. You will have no peace. But if you sit back and say, Just as he was in control and the worst moment of history at the death of Jesus Christ, so even the worst that happens in my life, God is there. He is present. He will not let me go, and his will will be completed. It's where the joy comes from. This is what I want you to understand. We hear people all the time is, God, give us peace. God, give us joy. God, give us comfort. We pray for this. Okay, it's Okay. But let me ask you a question. In the, mem- in the moment of something really radically bad, for how many of you did that prayer work? You find out that something severely bad has happened to your child, or you lost a job, and you're like, God, we just pray for comfort right now. The, it was like God infuses you. <gasps> oh, I just, that's so great. I, I lost my job and I lost my house, but I feel so good about it right now. I, this is, a, 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 anybody? Now, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but we pray a little bit crazy. And what I mean is, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for those things, but it never seems as though we receive the joy and the peace and the faith of God by directly asking for those things. They seem to be far more of a byproduct of us recognizing and acknowledging who He is, that He is greater and that He is in control. And when we mimic that and we read the word of God, and this is why, li- listen to me very carefully. I know some of you are going through lots of problems and relational problems and difficulties and, and maybe you came here this morning and you sat there and said, man, I want to hear something specifically about my marriage. I want to hear something specifically about uh, 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 about my job and how God's going to supply for me and all these different things. And the only hope for me every day that you come in is given the biggest clearest picture of God's greatness and his control that I possibly can so that you will have the joy, you will have the peace, and you will have the faith that God desires for you to have. And this is what this early church did. It was surprising how much of their prayer was about God. But you know what, number two? It was surprising how little the prayer was about them. It was surprising how little of the prayer was about them. Again, we understand that two-thirds of it was about God. Usually it's at least two-thirds of it that's about us. It's about what we want, what we want God to do for us, what we want God to take away from us, what he wants him to add for us. And their request didn't, it, what's interesting here is it's not until their minds and their hearts are appropriately calibrated to the one that they're making these requests that they feel as though they're now ready to make a request to God. This God's holy, this God's big, this God's greater, this God's in, God is in control. Realizing that then changes what it is that we ask of that God. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. So what is it that they do? They ask for two things. Their, their minds hearts calibrated to God, then they begin to make the requests. They do make requests. It's okay to make requests, okay? Let's make sure we understand that. And so, so he says to him. he says, verse 29, it says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is their first prayer. The first prayer is that they ask God's will to be done. And in it, it says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. They didn't say, hey, take care of these jokers for us. Hey, take these threats away. Hey, you know, take them out, like the, like the sons of thunder, just allow fire to come down, rage, and just take them out. No, it didn't, didn't do any of those types of things. They just simply said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. Here's why. Because they know that God has a sovereign will, but they don't know what God's sovereign will is. They don't know if God's sovereign will is to be able to take away those threats or to be able to keep those threats. So what they're in essence saying is, we want you just to be aware of our situation and we leave it up to you. That's their prayer. We trust you. So that's what they say. So they pray, first of all, in light of all of this, that that God's will will be done. And second, they ask for God's provision to be made. God's will to be done and God's provision to be made. They, they, they say, grant your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So yes, they were asking for something for themselves, but it was in light of what God had commanded them to do. God had said, I want you to be a witness. I want you to be a witness throughout the whole known world. So when they're asking something, they're not asking for a bigger house, for less persecution, for an easier life. They're asking, God, give us what is necessary, in this case, boldness, so that we won't shrink back from what it is that you have called us to do. Give us the boldness so that we will be obedient to you. And not only give us boldness, notice what he says. He says, also continue to perform supernaturally these signs and these wonders. But why are they asking? Again, not signs and wonders for themselves, but signs and wonders so that the message that they're speaking would be validated in the minds and in the ears and the hearts of those to whom they were speaking it. Everything that they were asking for had to do with the will of God. That's ultimately why they're asking. And it's not surprising how much their prayer was about God, but it was so surprising how little, or it was surprising how much it was about God, and it was so surprising how little it was about them. Now, again, to be clear, it's not wrong for us to ask God for our needs. Jesus tells us, and he even teaches us, that when we come to God, say, and God, give us our daily bread, right? Give us our daily bread. We're allowed to pray for that. We're allowed to pray for those needs, but when the bulk of our prayer life is focused on us and our temporal needs of what we want from God, it demonstrates that there's something clearly off. What, it, what their prayer teaches me is that this Christian life is about being a servant of God. What my prayer often reminds me of is that following Jesus for me is that sometimes I'm just a consumer, not a servant of God. There's a big difference between the two. What this prayer reminds me of again is that we are servants of God, not consumers. It's interesting to me to hear someone say, have you heard somebody say, maybe run into them occasionally, hey, would you like to come to church? We'd love you you to come to Mercy. And here's how they say, hey, man, I tried the whole religion thing before. I I tried that whole Christianity thing before. And and what's the response? It just didn't work for me. Here's, Here's what in essence they're actually saying. What they're actually saying is there were some things that I wanted and somebody told me that God would give it to me. So I was willing to endure Mike Kwiatkowski's preaching and come and endure a bunch of religious activities in hopes that I would get what it is that I ultimately wanted. Guess what? I didn't get it. It didn't work for me. So I wanna have nothing to do with a God who wouldn't give me what it is that I ultimately want. This reminds me a lot about the theme of Job People love, this is so embarrassing. Please, please don't sit there and ever say, I, I feel like Job. Just, that's embarrassing, all right? I mean, I mean really, I mean, uh, you and I and our cable going out in the middle of the Super Bowl is not the same of what happened to Job, right? And so we sit there, and, but, but the story of Job, many people, when they look at the story, they will say things like this. They will say, well, Job is about why bad things happen to good people. That's what the book's about. That's not what the book is about at all. To find out what the purpose of the book is, you've got to go to the beginning of the book. And in the beginning, beginning of the book, there's God. And, and, and God uh, actually speaks to Satan. He says, Have you considered my servant Job? And have you considered that there is nobody in this earth, on this earth, that is more righteous than he is? And how does, how does Satan respond to Jesus? He tells him, He says, Well, the only reason he serves you and follows you and obeys you is because you give him good stuff because he's obedient to you. In essence, he says, if you take that good stuff away, then he's he's not going to follow you anymore. So through the course of the book, what does God do? He takes away all of those blessings as a test to see, will he serve God for nothing? That's the point of the book. Will man serve God for nothing? And so uh, Tim Keller says it this way in explaining. He says, Satan was again saying that Job was nothing more than a consumer that he was willing to do business with God as long as he was able to get benefits at a low cost. But if you raise the cost, he will go away. He will no longer serve God for God's sake because he was only using God to serve himself. And it's amazing to me is because in these prayers, what I was constantly reminding of myself is and asking myself through these prayers is I'm saying, these men, these women were clearly servants of God. My prayers often demonstrate that I am nothing more than a consumer. That many times in my relationship with God, I am not concerned with God. I am not concerned with God's purposes. I am concerned with God being concerned about my purposes. And so, quick test for you to determine which one are you. If you listen to your prayers, it will determine that. And when you're looking at prayer, think of these three things. When you pray, do you spend the majority of your time talking about yourself, your needs, your wants, your feelings, your hopes, and your dreams? Or do you spend the majority of your time speaking about God, acknowledging His superior nature, his goodness, his power, and his control? Number two, when you pray, do, do you spend most of your time begging God to change your circumstances? Or do you spend the majority of your time praying for God's will to be done, even if that means your circumstances remain the same? And number three, when you pray for God to give you something, is it primarily for your comfort or is it for God's glory? This is the difference between a consumer and a servant of the holy God. And this is the way the early church would pray. And you know what I love about this prayer, just very quickly? What I love about the prayer is how it ends. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, Nick, you can come. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered the very prayer that they prayed. Why? Because it wasn't out of selfishness. It was for the glory and the honor of God. Let's pray.